0: Welcome to Research Radio, episode one. Research Radio is a monthly series that brings evidence-informed child welfare research to life through interviews with leading researchers. This month, we speak with Dr. Richard Barth about a chapter from the edited book, How Does Foster Care Work?, that he co-authored with Dr. Christopher Lloyd. The chapter is entitled, Five-Year Developmental Outcomes for Young Children Remaining in Foster Care, Returned Home, or Adopted. I'm your host... Matthew Hollingshead.
1: So I'm Rick Barsh. I'm the Dean at the University of Maryland School of Social Work. I'm in Baltimore, Maryland. as is my school. And I have been um, here um, for seven years. Before that, I was at the University of North Carolina and University of California, Berkeley. Uh, The work that I'm going to be talking about is actually a national study, but knowing where I've been will help uh, the workers who are listening to perhaps understand uh, some of my perspective.
0: Can you tell us a bit about this study and explain why you chose to study this specific topic?
1: So this study is part of something called the National Survey of Child and Adolescent Well-Being, which is a major And first, American investment in trying to understand what goes on in general child welfare practice, not anything specialized, no experiments or evidence-based practices per se, but in general child welfare practice. And I was involved with this study for about eight years in the first wave. They're now collecting another wave on a new group of children, but this is from the first group. And... From that study, uh, many questions and papers have been answered, but the question that uh, I tackled with my colleague Chris Lloyd in this chapter is one that's very close to my heart, and it is what happens to our youngest children when they become involved with child welfare services. So this has been an interest for a long time, because when I was in California, one of the things we looked at, this was back in the early 1990s, Mm -hmm. we looked at what happens to infants who come into child welfare and did some work on that that was eventually published in a book called The Tender Years. And one of the things that it demonstrated is at that time there were many children who came into foster care who were remaining in foster care for long periods of time. And one of the reasons they were remaining there for long periods of time was that we were operating under the assumption that if they were in a good foster home, and it was often said that they were bonded to the foster parent, said by the foster parent, of course, that we shouldn't move them because that would be developmentally disruptive to them, and yet there were other of us who were very concerned that they weren't doing well in those homes and that they were, for a variety of reasons, ending up getting moved anyway, and that it would be much better if we were tougher about allowing them to stay and more insistent that they be returned home or moved on to adoption. But at the time, we didn't have very good data to try to answer that question. The only thing we knew was that they were moving a lot, and they were staying in foster care a lot, but we couldn't really tell what the impact on those children was.
0: So having access to eight years of continuous data on the same group of people must be incredibly valuable.
1: Well, the thing that is very special, yes, it was six years, a little more than six years, but it took us a while to get it started and to analyze it on either end. And the thing that is very special about it is that it used very close measurement. So instead of just knowing how long children stayed, we had a field, a team of field interviewers who were measuring their academic achievement, working with the parents to get an estimate of what their behavior problems were, measuring their cognitive ability with IQ testing, uh, measuring speech and language and so on. So that was something that was unprecedented in terms of it, this much measurement, not just for a small group, like a group in the hospital or a group in a clinic, but for a sample of 5,501 children. Now, we took a smaller group in our study that is more homogeneous uh, in order to try to test this question. The group that we looked at is we looked at children who were young. They had to have been... Um, younger than they had had to have entered foster care within the first year of life basically okay. and then we looked to see what happened to them after a little more than 5 years 66 months and we basically looked at three groups those children who were still basically in foster care those who had moved on from foster care into adoption and those that been returned to the home of their parent or relative. Mm. So there were more than 350 children in the study. So it was still a reasonable size, but they um, were comparable in that they started life to a certain extent in the same way, uh, being in families where the decision was made that they couldn't be served at home, but that they needed foster care but then having a different path, one of these three different paths after after they started in foster
0: care. Right. Can you identify three or four key findings from your research? Sure. So
1: the most important finding was that when young children remain in foster care over a long period of time, it has untoward developmental effects. So, we might think that the children who were in foster care were ensured a certain level of developmental experience that foster parents generally have homes and schools, because these children would have been school-aged by the time they finished the study, mm-hmm. and communities that have more resources and therefore the children would have done better. But actually, the children in long-term foster care not only did not do as well as the children who were placed in adoption, but they did not do as well as the children who had returned home into less sort of measurably supportive, um, at least in terms of an economic sense, and poorer homes.
0: Do you have a sense of what the reason for this difference is?
1: Well, we don't have real precise data about that but my sense after having been involved with this kind of research for a long time and from looking at these data is that the key difference in all likelihood is that parental commitment to children and placement stability for children that is in the home of the parent or in the adoptive parent where adoptive parents have made a basically a lifetime commitment to a child and the child stays in one place Mm -hmm is more important than what we might think of as social capital, that is, the education level of the foster parents or um, something like that. Mm -hmm. So we have learned, I think, gradually, it's taken a long time, and I myself have changed my mind about this, um, that when children are in good, even if they're in good, safe environments, but... They're anxious because they're not sure what's going to happen to them. They are not feeling cared about. They don't necessarily feel that they are with people who are like them in many ways that that disrupts their development and they may spend more time uh, worrying about some of those factors and being unable to really uh, free themselves to develop to their maximum than those children who, even though the environment is not as secure, maybe not quite as safe, um, but to them it feels more comfortable and they have less stress and it improves their learning and mood and outcomes. Interesting. Now, why the adopted kids did better uh, has a slightly different explanation. In many ways, I think It's the combination both of what tends to be a somewhat uh, more enriched environment, although adoptive families are hardly wealthy families for the most part, somewhat enriched environment, and also a lot of parental commitment and a lot of services. That said, the adopted children, another important finding, did have more behavior problems than the kids in the general population. If you look at the standard... Of, um, that the Child Behavior Checklist uses to assess whether kids are higher or lower on behavior problems than the norms. These kids did have some behavior problems, but they, in terms of their learning and their um, cognition and their communication skills, they were the top group of these three.
0: Was that something you were expecting to find, or did you expect them to be more similar to youth who haven't been in care, or maybe to kids who have remained in foster care?
1: Well, the challenge of trying to figure out why kids who are adopted seem to have high levels of behavior problems is um, now been going on for many, many years. And so I wasn't that surprised to find that this was the case, Mm -hmm. although we tend to think that it occurs more during adolescence when children start to have identity problems or um, after they really can conceptualize what adoption is, which tends to be 10 years old. So a little bit surprised to find these kids were having these behavior problems at this early point in time. But one of the things that has to be understood, and this is a big issue in the adoption field, is that the reports of the behavior problems although we say they're standard reports because they come from a standard instrument, the child behavior checklist, they are made by the parents. So it's the parents who are looking at the behavior of their children and judging whether it's high, medium, or low, for example. So if the parents have a standard which would say that kids shouldn't be overly active or fighting or um, inattentive or aggressive because that's how – their nieces and nephews are, or that's how their birth children are, Mm -hmm. or that's how the students in their class, if they're a teacher, are, then these children may be uh, identified as having more problems, but we will never really know whether that's the parent's view of them or what how they're actually performing.
0: Right, so it's really based on the perception and expectations that the parents already have set out.
1: And we do have data from other studies that say just how important parental expectations are and that although we always say it's good to have high expectations um, and high levels of support, if the expectations are so high that they then become stressful in their own way for children Mm -hmm. or they become disappointing for parents, then that may be part of what explains why adopted children who do start off life in very difficult ways, don't necessarily adapt that much better uh, in adoption than uh, at least in the early years of their life. I think they catch up later, but they may not immediately respond to this more structured, resource-rich environment with um, better behavior.
0: Does this relate back to the idea of fit that you spoke about earlier? That certain homes are a better fit for certain children?
1: Ah. Um, I think that's possible. There are a number of studies, including one done by um, Bo Winterling in Sweden, that do show that um, adoption by families that have very high education, for example, is riskier, doesn't always have better outcomes than adoption by blue-collar families, perhaps because, again, there's a mismatch a mis- or misfit between the adopted um, parents' expectations and what the children can do. Mm-hmm. It's one of the other things we've learned. We didn't test it in this study, but I think one of the other things we're learning in the world of neuroscience is that growing up, uh, starting life um, with a mother who's not sure what's going to happen to her or to you and, get, and gets a, um, get exposed to stress at a very, very early point in their life, and then going through a lot of these changes may have not just a temporary impact on children's well-being, but could also actually have some. Um, these stress hormones can also have some physiological impact. So, kids who are adopted do have some special needs very often, and families do have to be able to respond to those in a way that doesn't uh, add pressure to to the children, but is very supportive of
0: them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm are there any other kind of key findings that you think would be important to mention
1: i think it should also be mentioned that although we've just been talking about how relatively speaking the adopted kids and the kids who went home did better than the kids who remained in foster care it's also important to say that for all three groups um, they had language intelligence and academic achievement that was in the average range so the general result of uh, for these children who got this protective intervention was uh, reasonable protection of their capacity and we don't know, we did not have a group that was allowed to remain at home in a very adverse environment without going into out-of-home mm-hmm. care but it's very possible to conceptualize that they may not have ended up with result of having language, intelligence, academic achievement in the average range.
0: You've mentioned a number of rich dynamics about the relationships between children and their care environments. How do you think the child welfare practitioners can benefit from understanding this topic and from being aware of the issues that you've described? So
1: I think there are quite a few ways. One of them is that it's really important not to buy into this notion that when a foster parent is close to a child or cares a lot about a child, that that is as good as um, having a permanent family for the child. Building on prior research that we had done, we often found that foster parents who said they were just very close and very bonded to the child, for one reason or another, four or five years later, were not still the foster parent of that child. So I do believe that uh, a high level of... um, uh skepticism should be used when people say well this child is bonded to a temporary caregiver uh, other than their biological family or somebody else who makes a permanent legal uh commitment especially for young children uh so that's that's certainly a consideration the other is that um, that the child welfare worker is always going to be faced with the question about a child who is living in poverty with their struggling parents and whether they should intervene to remove those children. Now, in extreme cases, yes, absolutely, uh, removal may be necessary. And this is not a study that compares non-removal to removal. All of these children were removed, and the time was taken to assess the situations and hopefully to help the families regain capacity to care for their children but the outcomes of children who were reunified in this case and not all of them were reunified by any means it doesn't mean that every child should be reunified but the outcomes for the children who were reunified were generally pretty good there were children ended up with um average ability and performance on many different measures. So that's another thing that's important to recognize, that the outcomes of reunification for the children for whom that was done were um, certainly better than those who weren't reunified. Mm. Now, the third thing is that it's also important to say that we don't know whether some of the kids got adopted because they were easier kids to care for, and some of the kids who remained in foster care were a bit more difficult. They already had more disorganized behavior or challenging behavior. But what I would say that indicates is it's certainly a limitation of the study, but also it's an important opportunity to implement and call to implement evidence-based practices like KEEP and Multidimensional Treatment Foster Care and other programs to try to help reduce the problem behavior of children rapidly so they can get a move on to exit to adoption or return
0: home. Writing in response to your study, Bo Winterling mentions that there is a surprising lack of follow-up research comparing outcomes between adoption and different kinds of long-term foster care, especially considering that placement stability is such an important goal for policymakers and practitioners. I think that's something that's true in Canada as much as it is in the United States. Can you comment on this sentiment and explain how your study can contribute to future policy, practice, and research efforts?
1: Well, I absolutely agree with um, Bo, and I know that there are a number of countries now that are developing national longitudinal studies. Australia has one going on. I wouldn't be surprised to find that Canada does. But so, from that standpoint, I think that it's a good example of what we do need to do to not only follow kids over time and I wish that we had continued to invest in this group of children and follow them over time but also uh, even further than the six years but it's also um, important to try to measure closely some of the outcomes of well-being that we're really trying to achieve so yes this is important the other kind of study that's very important that, so Winterling and his colleagues, um, like Anders Hearn, are doing in Sweden is they're using other kinds of legal records and uh, birth certificates, school attendance, military admissions tests, mm-hmm. hospitalizations, and so on to really follow children over a very long time. And that is, I think, turning out to be a very effective way to do research at a relatively low cost that gives you a picture of the kinds of outcomes that you're getting. And they also found that the kids who were in foster care for many years were not doing as well as other poor children who may have had some comparability. They can't be real sure they were comparable, but other poor children, for example. And that foster care is not giving them the results that they had hoped. Now, in the United States and Canada, the option of adoption is um, quite strong and you can Get out of the child welfare system by adoption but there are a couple of countries like New Zealand and Australia and Sweden where there is almost no domestic adoption and I guess one of the last points about these longitudinal studies is that most all of them do point to not perfect not easy but ultimately quite satisfying outcomes for most adopted children and that they really do indicate that the countries who are developing or have domestic adoption programs are um, doing something which is good for children.
0: Thanks so much for talking with us today, Dr. Barth.
1: It was a privilege. I hope that the many dedicated and talented child welfare workers that might be listening to this uh, will find it of use.
0: You've been listening to Research Radio, Episode 1. A conversation with Dr. Richard Barth. Research Radio is produced by Practice and Research Together, a membership-based organization that promotes the understanding and use of evidence-informed practice at all levels of the child welfare system. For more information about this episode's topic, Research Radio, or Practice and Research Together, please visit www. Dot part dot org And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at PartEIP. That's ParteIP. Thanks for listening.